everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Script Screen Podcast with the Writer Die Chicks. I am Mercedes. I'm Deanna. And I'm Angela. And for the month of April, we covered what has been renowned as a classic for some time, um, broadcast news. I have thoughts. <laughs> I also have thoughts. <laughs> I have thoughts on the on the script and the screen and the screen, so I guess it's good we're doing this podcast. <laughs> okay, um, so broadcast news was written, directed, and produced by James L. Brooks. You, as you know, if you listen to this podcast, but if you don't know, we do like to cover what those ty- um, what the writing credits mean, um, just because there's so many and it's. It's important to know, and if you don't know, then we're going to help you find out. So, written by indicates the writer or writers that are entitled to the story by credit and the screenplay by credit. So the story by credit is anyone who worked on a treatment or outline of the movie, and a screenplay by credit is for the writers who physically wrote drafts or scenes included in the final version of the movie. James L. Brooks did everything, so he gets all the credit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so a bit of background on this film, uh, description per Wikipedia. Broadcast News is the 1987 American romantic comedy drama written, produced, and directed by James L. Brooks. The story follows three television news professionals, Jane Craig, played by Holly Hunter, a brilliant A-type producer who lives for her work, Aaron Altman, played by Albert Brooks, an exceptionally experienced news writer and reporter who also happens to be Jane's best friend and secret admirer, and Tom Grenick, played by William Hurt, a devilishly handsome and underqualified local news anchor whose success is resented by Aaron and whose work ethic is questioned by Jane. And yet we have a love triangle between the three of them. Um, But beyond the love triangle, and this is the movie I wanted to see, we have a glaring dilemma. Is broadcast news losing its integrity to flashy celebrity anchors and entertainment value? Yes. Yes. (laughs) It happened. (laughs) Yes, it is. I, I'm going to say off the top, I really wish we had focused more on that instead of the romance, because if you're listening to this, you should have either read it or watched it by now. I think the romance kind of put a hamper on like what the real story was. It kind of just kept getting in the way and it amounted to nothing. (laughs) It was, it just totally went so heavily on the trope of, you know, the stereotypic workaholic woman who doesn't know how to love. Oh, and yeah. I'm like, that's not necessary. <laughs> she mm-hmm. just, she wanted the news to be news. She wanted it to be what it was meant to be. And he basically stands for the exact opposite of it all. So it was very frustrating. But I thought the love story was pretty dull compared to what it could have been. Like you said, we could have mm-hmm. had so much more. But, you know, I guess he wanted to write a love story. So mm-hmm. yeah. this is what yeah. we got. This is what we got. And it, like... I think it also was very much, like, of the times, because in the 80s, it kind of felt like everything had to have that element of, like, ooh, will they, won't they? (laughs) But this one just, I don't know, the love story didn't work for me, and it didn't work for any of the characters either. So I'm like, why didn't we just take it out and focus on the real story? Mm -hmm. I want to get to the meat of the news. (laughs) Yeah, the um, news was definitely the best part. 
and it started mm-hmm. giving me anxiety from when I used to do live and I was like I don't want to ever go back I can't do it yes oh my god I I got flashbacks when they were in the um in the control room during the broadcast and she was telling him all the stuff that he needs to do I I got flashbacks to my one directing class in undergrad and I was just like oh I don't know how people find that that's a rush that was just anxiety inducing and I yes. could not do it again So uh, a little bit about James L. Brooks. He's a director, a producer, a writer, a show creator. Basically, he's a jack of all trades. And this is who we can thank for the Mary Tyler Moore show and its spinoffs available on Hulu. Um, And The Simpsons, he's a co-creator of The Simpsons, Turns of Endearment, and As Good As It Gets. I am not a super fan of As Good As It Gets, but people love it. (laughs) Something that most people might not know, but can probably deduce by looking closely at his filmography, uh, Mary Tyler Moore, if Brooks is obsessed with the news industry, and he actually got his start in news. He was a host at CBS and became a copywriter for CBS News and eventually a writer for news broadcasts. His first job outside of the news was a rewrite for My Mother the Car. Have you guys ever heard of this show? No. No. What is that? It's a weird series from the 60s about a guy whose mother passes away and is reincarnated as a 1928 quarter and is able (laughs) to communicate with him through the radio. I... (laughs) That is ridiculous. So, but I I looked it up because they have, you know, like there's that that weird trope with old shows. Sometimes you could find like full episodes on YouTube if you just type it in. Yes. They have that. But I just looked up the um, the intro song because, you know, back then every every theme song was super catchy. The theme song <laughs> is actually kind of cute. <laughs> I recommend any listener that is curious, please go and look up the theme song at least because it is very adorable. Well, and did, it's just like a guy driving in a... <laughs> did they like, have an episode? The they, um, yeah, they have... They have um, I didn't see how many full episodes they have, but they have some episodes just on okay. YouTube. Yeah. Okay, I need to I need to at least see this pilot. I have to watch this. <laughs> I, I, one of those shows that I'm just like, whose idea was this? I don't understand why this got made, but maybe people were grasping at straws at the time. Maybe it's an actually really good show and it's just a weird pitch. But yeah. <laughs> I was like, how do you get reincarnated as a car though? Out of mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. The song kind of suggests that the mom decided to come back as this car. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't know any woman that would want to come back as a car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> but if you fast forward, humble beginnings, rewriting for that show, and then he eventually created his first show called Room uh, 222, um, which is a comedy drama about an idealistic high school history teacher who tackles a range of topical and traditional adolescent conflicts and teaches a Students' Tolerance, which actually seems like a really good forward-thinking show for the time. Um, I think I've heard you, of that one. Yeah, you can also find episodes of that on YouTube if you feel so inclined, which I do recommend at least watching one because it does, it was it was very progressive. And then we fast forward to 1987 and we get broadcasting. <laughs> so, have you guys ever heard of Susan Zerinsky? The name sounds familiar, but I need some details. Yeah, it was probably in the so, textbook. She is basically the the person that inspired Jane's character. Okay. Don't they mention her? Uh, 
I don't know if they mention her in the movie. Honestly, I can't remember. I think it's name. in the script because she like names, she rattles off names of other women producers. Oh, oh yeah. And I think she's one be. of them. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So broadcast news was based on her experience working in the CBS newsroom, uh, News Washington Bureau. Uh, she served as associate producer and technical advisor for broadcast news and coached Holly Hunter on her portrayal of her as Jane Craig. She is an American journalist and television news broadcaster or producer and has been the first female president and senior executive producer of CBS News since January 2019. So she's the first one to do it as a woman. <laughs> as CBS News president and senior executive producer, Zerinsky is responsible for CBS News broadcast and the division's news gathering across all platforms, including television, CBS News Radio, CBSNews.com, and CBSN. She's a total badass, and she looks so cool. I was just going through looking at pictures <laughs> of her and, like, reading interviews, and I'm just like, you're so cool. But, yeah, everybody should give her a big thumbs up and look her up because she's awesome. Even if you're not super into news, you have to admit that she is a trailblazer. Yeah, so she inspired this movie. Susan Zerinsky. Susan Zerinsky. <laughs> Commit it to memory. <laughs> All right, so with that, we can jump right on in to the script. So uh, in case this is your first time listening, we do a page one breakdown for every episode that we do um, because the first page is arguably the most important page. It's really what makes or breaks the experience for the reader and decides if you are going to the A stack or the trash can. So, <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, we are going to read through this first page and then talk about it. Dee, will you do um, action? Just one second. I closed the tab. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Who would you like, Mercedes? Um, I don't mind doing Gerald. Do you want to do Tom? Okay, sure. Okay. Fade in, exterior, city street day. A restaurant supply truck is curbside near a small restaurant. Gerald Grunick, 41, is closing the back door of his truck, feeling good about the world, a common state for him. He moves towards the cab of the truck and gets inside as we super. Kansas City, Missouri, 1963. Interior, truck day, as he sits down beaming over his recent good fortune, now. We reveal his 12-year-old son, Tom, seated quietly beside him. He seems a bit down. Gerald glances at his son. I don't know a recent Saturday I've sold more. You didn't think I'd sell that health restaurant, did you? No, not even you. Why so glum? I don't know. Go ahead. No, nothing. I've got a problem, I guess. Were you bothered by those waitresses making a fuss? No, but honest. What are you supposed to say when they keep talking about your looks? I don't even know what they mean. Beat them off of a stick. Gerald stifles- oh, dang it. <laughs> Gerald stifles the grin. Oh, I saw was- <laughs> You're Gerald! I said- I Gerald. That's why I saw Gerald and I was like, it's my cue. <laughs> that is okay. Okay, so right away for me, I feel like Gerald's character reads like someone who has a level of confidence 
a lot of people might not have. Um, and it comes specifically from the line, feeling good about the world is a common state for him. By the bottom of the page, Gerald's stifled grin tells all, essentially. These two are good looking and probably Caucasian. We know they're males already. Life is all, was always going to be nice for them to some degree. But Tom's last line um, about what do they mean, beat them off with a stick. It's an interesting twist because we get the humble son. Um, and that's a super redeeming quality in someone that's inherently good looking. There's just like a lot of people, it, you can tell that he's going to grow up and he's always going to be kind of bothered that like his looks are always going to overshadow anything else he feels he has to offer the world. What do you guys think? I think he's dramatic, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree, completely agree with everything that you say. But at the same time, he kind of, I mean, it just goes to show when um, she actually meets him, everything she says, like, what do you want me to do about it? Like, you're good looking, sorry. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of like people, when people complain about the stupidest things that you're like, please shut up, you're fine. <laughs> Like, do you know what people would do for your looks? You're going to be fine. Yeah. But I think mm-hmm. it is endearing that he, like, wants to be more. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it, it, I was just like, oh, you you sweet boy. <laughs> Please stop. <laughs> I think overall it's a super tight first page. You get enough of a sense about these characters that you're like, oh, I kind of want to see where this goes. Because it's you're not great- sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great la- like it's a great last line of dialogue to really draw an interest. Like, hmm, that's an interesting angle. Let's see what this good-looking kid has to say about life. <laughs> <laughs> and from that point on, I we're going to move into Act One, which I titled "Perpetual Childhood Tendencies." By page two, we can deduce that Tom's character thinks he's good-looking to a fault, and maybe he'll grow into that. Maybe not. However, we know for a fact that he will always resent that he's, that the only thing he'll ever excel in without any doubt is being good looking. So we get the line, what can you do with yourself if all you do is look good? And then we super into the legend, future network anchorman. And I thought that was so, I don't know, I thought that was really witty to like, bam, here's the setup. And then the super is the punchline. It, it was funny. It's sad, but funny. It is sad, but I think there's an element of truth to it that's really, I found that charming. At this stage, when I was reading through it at the beginning, I was just like, oh, you know, I can get behind this script. (laughs) It feels like such a different tone from the rest of the movie to me, Mm -hmm. Mm because it it seems like it's going to be more, like, more comical Mm -hmm. than it is, Um, but I I like how he included the Super the Legends. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really brilliant tip-off for the character and a very graceful comedic timing on the page. Then we move on to meeting Aaron Altman. I would just like to say Aaron is my favorite character in this Me whole too. damn movie. <laughs> He's the only I one that makes him. sense. <laughs> I was like, that one. That one. That's the one. <laughs> I'll be his wife. I got it. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> He deserved so much more. He did. All I have to say. (laughs) So here we're seeing him as uh, a youth as well. Um, He's described as a battle-scarred innocent. And I thought that was a really interesting way to describe him because it's just like you kind of get the sense you know what type of person that is. 
just like everybody kind of knew someone in high school that was like, oh, that person is battle scarred because they're, they're constantly being picked on and it's usually because of their brains, you know? From the moment we meet him, we know he's smart and he knows it. He's giving a valedictory speech and he's graduating at the age of 15. And he's 14, right? Was it 14? It's 15. Oh, I thought he was a few months shy of his 15th birthday. You know what? That's probably Uh, true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're right. That makes it so much worse. (laughs) (laughs) And he's the valedictorian of his class. So I think it's a very interesting descriptor to uh, it suggests that he's targeted easily and often to be the battle scarred innocent. And basically that translates into the bullied nerd. So what I, what I love about it is that he like, yes, he's the bullied nerd, but he also has the mouth to match it. Yes. (laughs) I love it. Comebacks. I love it. He's so fast. Oh, I love it. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, the, they didn't deserve him. <laughs> they did not deserve him. They did not appreciate him. He deserves your respect. Um, so if we're in scene three, interior high school auditorium day. Um, his opening lines of dialogue here, which is acting as his valedictory speech, um, they accomplish something that I think all writers should strive for, which is exposition and character description all at once. Because we only got a little bit of character description in the actual action paragraph. This writer is using the dialogue to really help to explain what type of person this is. And it's something that kind of harkens back to what, what um, they were doing in Amelie, which I, I really appreciate this style of like, don't waste time trying to describe tangible things in your action paragraphs use that for more internal stuff use the rest of the page all the other elements of the script to kind of help you build these characters and make them three-dimensional I would like to note though so Aaron's like all that dialogue is very long because he happens to be given a speech normally like it should come like it shouldn't always be like a super long monologue unless there's an actual reason for it. Like he's giving a commencement speech. So obviously it's going to be long and we can learn like that, but Mm -hmm. don't just give someone a super long monologue like this to try and accomplish (laughs) that, like spread it out unless there's a reason for them to have a monologue. Be very um, mindful of how you're using it. Very good point. (laughs) So do you, would you mind reading the second paragraph of dialogue there? This is where we get really juicy into it. The big one, (laughs) the big one. Okay. (laughs) that was of course not meant to be taken seriously a personal note i am frequently frequently asked what the special difficulties are in being graduated from high school two months shy of my 15th birthday and was right (laughs) i sometimes think it was the difficulties themselves which enabled me to do it if i'd been appreciated or even tolerated i wouldn't have been in such a hurry to graduate I hope the next student who comes along and is able to excel isn't made to feel so much an outcast. But I'm looking forward to college. This is the happiest day I've had in a long time. I thank you, and I forgive you. I love it. Just the audacity. I just love it. <laughs> it, was, but, it was just as good on the screen. That's why I liked it. I was like, yes, it keep was. his ass. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he has such a baby face. I love the actor they chose for young Aaron. <laughs> But it's such a, like, like, some people could totally take this as, what an asshole. But there's a lot of truth to what he's saying. Mm-hmm. 
He's like, I hope like no one else has to go through this just because they're smart. Mm -hmm. I love it. So this of course leads into like a consequence of being beat up one last time. Uh, So the next, the very next scene, scene for exterior schoolyard day. So even though we're witnessing Aaron get his butt kicked, we're, we're getting a scene that I think is extremely witty because he gets his, his burns in this scene are so well calculated and like, it's something you wouldn't expect a 14 year old to say. (laughs) I just, it, and the scene I think I really like about the action paragraphs is don't worry about being super specific about where we are because we just get the general, like these students are standing out in the middle of like a quad area or something. And Mm -hmm. there's obvious scuffling going on. People can deduce that you're obviously in a high school setting. They'll find somewhere to shoot it. Honestly, if you try to be that specific, unless it's something that's really going to serve the story or the plot, then just be general. People will figure it out because sometimes if you want to shoot in the gym, the gym's not going to be available. (laughs) Just (laughs) figure it out. Say what you want to say. Have the scene, the meat of the scene in your mind and put it on the page. Don't worry about the specifics of we need to be in the auditorium doing this at this time. I like the you get the gist tone from the writer. Um, And I will definitely be stealing that and putting it in my own work. The best line of this scene, you'll never make more than $19,000 a year. <laughs> I just, he's, it, it really helps to like hammer in that Aaron is far beyond his years intellectually. And he's probably always going to be a little bit ahead of the average person. He's one of those like high IQ people mm-hmm. that just can't help. He doesn't have patience for stupid people. I think too, it shows that for these burns, he definitely thought about this like he Mm -hmm. knew this was going to happen he knew that there were going to be consequences to his speech so Mm -hmm. I feel like he was ready he had all of these burns ready to go and I love that it says so much about him yeah but it just went over the bully's heads and it's like it'll come back it'll haunt them one day but I think that that says a lot about his character too it was like he's surrounded by all these people who are inferior to him and he knows that they're not gonna get it but he's like soon you will soon (laughs) Mm -hmm. when you really start struggling you're gonna wake up in the middle of the night and remember that I told you this would happen exactly (laughs) when you're poor and you have five kids (laughs) oh my gosh and then his super is future network news reporter which I really love this is like the best lead-in this is my favorite this is one of my favorite like intros in movies you know the mm-hmm. best the best intro to characters mm-hmm. then we move on to Jane's character I'm not gonna harp on her too much because her best her best moments come as an older adult she has a really great intro as a child where she's obviously she's you could tell that she's going to be someone that's really going to be focused on what's happening in the world because of her pen pals and you could tell that she's A-type because she gets really upset with her father about him calling her obsessed. And so um, I really think that James L. Brooks focuses on the psychology when he's trying to explain who these characters are in the action paragraphs. And I think that it's one of the best examples that we get in the script, in my opinion, 
is when we are introduced to older Jane. So, Ange, would you mind reading her introductory action paragraph, please? <laughs> Over exterior small Midwestern city day, emerging from the blackness, Jane Craig, now a 28-year-old woman, a lone speedwalker wearing a jacket to which reflecting stripes have been glued, the kind of gear only possessed by someone who runs at off hours. The jacket itself is a wish-I-had-it souvenir from some important news assignment. The sort of treasure you love above all else, yet never mention. She stops running as she feeds quarters into the first of a phalanx of newspaper machines, getting seven different papers before moving on. I really love the added minute details, like the seven newspapers, because to me it felt like her character was someone that really liked her news balance, and that's something you could deduce right away. I think as writers, the key takeaway could be don't shy away from the crafty inserts like that if it serves the character. So she give her the newspapers, let her wear her favorite souvenir jacket. And even if it's, um, if this world is completely outside of your audience's purview, they'll get it. People understand nuance and people understand people for the most part. So like we're reading this, we don't have to know that she's like a hot chat producer in news or whatever, but we all have like a jacket that we really love that we got from somewhere. And that's a really good identifier of like, this is one of the perks of having her work. And you could tell that she really treasures it pretty much in the same way that she treasures this jacket and she's working in news. It's really important to her to have balanced news and to see what everybody's doing and try and do better. For me, it was a callback to like her seven different pen pals. Mm. So her seven different news sources. <laughs> That's a really interesting connection to like patterns. Yeah. That was my takeaway. HD. <laughs> and what do you think? I I just like that because back in the news days when people used to do read more newspapers, I remember people saying they would have to read things cover to cover and then and have to get it from different sources to see how people are if they are doing biased news, if they're skewing a certain way, or who's focusing on what. And I just like that part, just seeing how how seriously she takes her job, and how just the length she does, goes to to do it. But yeah, I I, I didn't uh, pay as much attention to the jacket until I was rereading it now, but I was like, that is, that is really cute. That is a personality trait that I think is really cute. Well, to me mm-hmm. on the screen, they didn't like, the jacket didn't stand out as much to me as it did on the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And that goes down to, like, you can have the image in your head, and then when it finally comes to fruition, it's not exactly what you thought it was going to be, because I thought it was going to be something super bright and vibrant. It was just, Me like... Me too, yeah. And it, it was just looked normal. Yeah, it was toned down yeah. on the screen. Mm-hmm. So I want to take a moment to kind of touch on a special friend of Jane's named Philofax. I had no idea what the heck a Philofax was. I know. I was laughing at you. I had to old. <laughs> I had to look that up. And so I want to say this is something if you don't know what a filofax is either, it's okay. <laughs> I did the research for you and I'm here to share what I found. The fact so, that you call it re- oh my god. What? I feel so old. <laughs> you don't well, know what a filofax is. <laughs> I didn't, and I'd heard of it, I'd heard the term used before, because um, I listened to Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and she transitioned to um, electronic filing and stuff like that, and she's like, I do miss my file facts, though, and I was like, what the heck is that? 
So <laughs> this movie forced me to finally do the research, and I'm just like, oh, okay. Um, basically, <laughs> a file, basically, I've had a Filofax for most of my life. Yes, Filofax <laughs> because it's a that's really a brand of a type of thing. It's not mm-hmm. what it is. It's like. Um, Kleenex is a brand of tissue, but it's not all yeah. tissues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's basically a binder filled with paper and calendars and to-do lists and contact lists, whatever you want to put in it. And then traditionally you'll find like a black binder. You'll find like file faxes are black binders with white paper filled with professional planned life. But I did find this really cool blog where this girl is just like all about, the whole blog was about her file fax. And she's like, <laughs> yeah, I have like a really nice, like, pink filofax binder that I had to hunt down and I have like rainbow pages and I love it I'm just like ooh, that looks good it's really cool for people that love stationery I'm a big stationery person I think I might be a filofax person <laughs> I have a holographic one it's oh my gosh it's holographic but it has like I have my calendar in there I have notepads in there I have like a pen there are little like post-it thingies it's beautiful <laughs> go out and get yourself a file fax people and Please, be cute about it don't just stick with stark colors you don't have to do that you can get yes creative. there's a range you don't have to get the file fax brand if you just google that a bunch of different ones will pop up and you will find one you like they had mm-hmm. a ton at michael's that's where i got mine oh mm-hmm. i'm down with it i love it <laughs> i love it and then you could just you keep the binder year after year yeah, you can what replace you... all the stuff. It all yeah, the up. inserts. What do you do with all the inserts? Whatever you want. Ooh. <laughs> it's kind of like when you keep, because I, I keep track of like what I was doing in past years by keeping my calendars. I have like yeah. all my calendars all through college. So that's when I started doing it. But that's cool if you have like, you have your calendar, but then you also have like your file facts and you call it like file facts diary from 2020. <laughs> It's basically just a really big expanded planner. I'm with it. File facts, people. <laughs> this is basically, but the, Jane lives her life out of her file facts. And now, after I've done the research, I can understand why. File facts are the shit, people. <laughs> well, well, it reminded me of how, um, like, basically, the file facts is described as, like, Jane's friend. It also mm-hmm. reminded me of in 21 Dresses. She has a giant file facts kind of thing. And when the love interest sees it, he's like, why don't you just have a Blackberry? But again, it says a lot about, like, a a very organized, kind of workaholic type of person, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, I think it says something. This this film is coming at a time. It was, it was filmed at a time where filofaxes were probably, like, regular in, in professional lives. That was mm-hmm. before, this pre-Blackberries, this is what people used if they were professionals working on the scene. But now, if you choose, like, in present day, if you choose to have a file of facts above all else, like, that really says something about you. I like planners. Like, I like digital calendars and planners, too. But I just, it helps me remember better to write things down. But they they describe this in the script as an extra character. And I think it's really interesting because that also, in saying that Jane's file of facts is basically a character in itself, it really does help to show how much of her life is dedicated to her job because she lives out of a, a an extended planner that is all her job. I wouldn't want to see what would happen if she ever lost her file of facts. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> She'd have a breakdown. Oh, yeah. 
Speaking of breakdowns, can we talk about Jane's crying? Oh my God. Okay. So when I saw this, at first I was like, oh my God, what the hell? But then I was reading somewhere, um, a, a therapist was answering questions about like crying and how it's okay to cry and how she had a client who couldn't cry even though she wanted to. And so she recommended scheduling time in her day or a week to just cry it out. And I've seen other movies where characters like specific, Oh, it was on, it was on a show. Uh, it was on, um, uh, Grace and Frankie, the oldest daughter literally has nights set aside where it's just a cry night where she puts on a really sad movie, drinks wine and cries it out. So that's oh what it reminded gosh. me of. Like it's a thing. People do that. They make time to cry. <laughs> Wow. This was my first introduction to anything like that. I did not know you could set aside time specifically <laughs> to cry, but it looked like it helped. And the thing is, is it, it has to say something about her that it's a daily ritual. Like she mm-hmm. has to cry at least once a day and usually at the start of the day. Because <laughs> she's like so stressed out all the time and she keeps her cool. She just lets it out, man. It's got to come out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I can imagine if she didn't schedule the time, it she would like just explode at any moment mm-hmm. it's, but yeah I can start my day with a cry I was like any of the day with a cry is one thing but starting your day with it I'd be like that put me in the wrong mindset <laughs> yeah it's interesting I, I don't know it's interesting that she does choose like to cry before the start of the day because I would feel like after the types of days that we see her have it would make more sense for her to cry at night <laughs> but maybe she's like I gotta I gotta rear myself up like, but maybe she's so exhausted she just passes out and then wakes up and she's like okay let it all out <laughs> okay, let's go. Let's get it going. What's next? That makes sense. <laughs> so um, I want to go ahead and read the first time that we see her cry. I have the action paragraph here. Dee, would you do the honors so we can share this special gift with our <laughs> listeners? <laughs> she hangs up, takes the phone off the hook, and lays it on the bed for a moment's solitude. She sits stiffly, palms on top of her legs. It looks like someone with unusually good posture waiting for something. And now we begin to see the first signs of that which she was waiting for as her face tenses, her eyes redden, and she begins to cry. Now she sobs, then miraculously shakes it off and exits quickly to the bathroom. This crying episode is clearly part of her morning routine. That is such an interesting detail. It even reads really interesting on the page. Just the way it's described. I don't know. I love that detail about her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like it too, though, because he could have, he could have included so much more detail, but I, again, like, this is all you need. Mm You know, this crying is a part of her morning routine. Leave that to the actor to show what that looks like. Mm -hmm. All right. So now we're going to fast forward to the conference of local television news broadcasters, basically Jane's super bomb fest where she bombs hard (laughs) in front of her colleagues. (laughs) One thing I do want to point out, because I wasn't sure how I felt when I read it, the way that the writer describes the news teams, I thought was really interesting. I think that was a sign of the times. I think it was too. (laughs) I think it was too, because here it's describing, we get news teams from around the country, remarkably similar in comparison, a great looking woman, good looking man, either young or attractively avuncular, and a black or Hispanic. And I was just like, uh, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) only one of the two. 
We can't have both. both. (laughs) Definitely a sign of the times. And they they separated the people of color from the good looking. It's like, there's an end separating that. Yes. It's just like the the great looking woman, let's just assume she's Caucasian. And the great looking man, also let's assume they're Caucasian. And then there's the other races. And then we have those, whatever you guys want. Go for it. (laughs) But I also, I also felt like it was, there was like a point of maybe like trying to liberalize it a little bit. It felt like the way it was described was almost trying to see like, look at every news team trying to show that they're diverse, quote unquote diverse. It's just like, look, we have our Hispanic. (laughs) They're right there. I mean, that could be it, but it also could be unintentional. And maybe that's what he was trying to do in his writing. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just, I was like, I really hope that's what, I hope you're trying to make a statement like, stop pretending, just be diverse. But we can't really say, we can't speak to what his (laughs) intentions were. That's what I want to believe his intentions were. (laughs) Okay. Because we know if you want to see it on the screen, you have to put it on the page. So if you mm-hmm. didn't put anything, you don't know what that audience would have been comprised of. But still, it's just like, oh, okay, that's a way to phrase it. <laughs> An interesting detail might have been to add, like if I were describing it this way and I wanted to keep that the same, I would probably add in something like the illusion of liberalism or something. Yeah. Because that's that's still in line with the style that he's established so far. Or maybe the illusion of diversity. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing, so the thing about that is nowadays, if you listen to um, America Ferrera talk about Superstore, which is one of the most diverse casts we've seen in a really long time, they actually didn't put like Hispanic or Filipino. They just mm-hmm. left it as as is, and then just whoever was the best choice, that's who they chose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so I think it says a lot about how times are changing and you don't necessarily need to put that um unless you're making a specific exactly unless you're making a specific point but you don't have to do that all the time Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know you don't have Mm -hmm. to know like every single character who they are and you know what race or where they come from necessarily well where they come from yes but you know don't make it weird (laughs) (laughs) okay so here we're seeing Jane on a podium and she's telling us basically her big issue with the industry. That's what her talk is essentially about. Um, and I think it's the super, the super theme of the movie is like beyond the romance. This is what we're getting at is the news losing its integrity and genuine value to fun and entertaining trends and general celebrity. Um, and when I, read this part of the script it really made me think about do you guys listen to criminal with phoebe judge yes it's really good if you don't listen to it you should um but she did not too long ago um an episode called call russ ewing um and this is the type of reporter that or the broadcast journalist in general that i was thinking that maybe jane was trying to touch on Um, so I did a little, just a mini bio, just to touch on like the idea of what she's trying to get at. Like, this is real journalism. What we're doing right now is not. So Russ Ewing was a broadcast journalist in Chicago from 1967 to the late 1990s. 
who over the course of his career negotiated 155 surrenders to police of wanted felons. He would walk along the fel- alongside the felons as they offered themselves up to the police, acting as a human shield for those afraid the police would shoot on sight. He could walk into a hostage situation and convince the assailant to voluntarily relinquish their weapon. Um, the man was a force, and I feel like this is the type of journalist that Jane is holding out for, but unfortunately, this type of journalism was kind of waning out of prime time at this particular point in time, as far as news is concerned. So I think that's the type of journalist that, that Jane's like, we should all be trying to be serious about our jobs. This is the type of journalism that Aaron does throughout the film. He's serious. They, they go to dangerous places. They report on real news. And when she shows that, um, what was it, that domino competition? Yeah. Yeah. And everybody's cheering. It's just like you kind of feel for her because it's like she's not wrong. That technically isn't news. But at the same time, I can understand sometimes the news can be really heavy and you need kind of that break from everything going on. But where's the balance? Like that's that's the question that I find myself asking. That's why I think that this particular theme in the movie is so thought provoking because it is true. It's like, where do you draw the line? But then, enter Bachelor number one. <laughs> now we have to do, we ask these hard questions and then we distract ourselves with a love interest. Yeah. Scene 19, interior Jane's room, night, in case you were wondering. So Tom introduces himself after the talk and he, we can all tell that Jane has done, I loved her speech and Tom loved her speech. And so he he sees that she's someone that he could use as a mentor, um, especially since he's new to the industry, but he seems to be excelling and he doesn't really understand why. My thing about it is I'm not sure if the hotel room scene with Jane and Tom was like sexy or cringy. Oh, so, it was like, cringy. I, yeah, it was super cringy. 100%. On, on both yeah. of their parts. Because it's just like, the the inclination there was just like, okay, so he clearly has like a motive in mind that's like, I see you as mentor. And she's just like, it's been forever since I've been late. <laughs> How are you at back rubs? Well, she's not really expecting like this good looking di- guy to basically complain about getting ahead because of his looks. She's like, mm-hmm. oh, he's interested. Let's do this. Mm-hmm. Like why? Like why would this good-looking guy complain about being good-looking? Which is yeah. what any r- rational person would think. I I think. <laughs> you know, I agree. <laughs> and I honestly think I would probably have the same reaction that she did. I thought she was cold, but I was like, you know what? He deserved that one. <laughs> but it feels like to me, it feels pretty evident that this romance is going to be bumpy. Like I could tell from the start they weren't going to work. Did you guys? I hoped they wouldn't, but you yeah. never know with these eighties love stories. So. Exactly, the they 80s were so. <laughs> they're so fundamentally different. I was just like, I don't, I don't see it happening. What were you gonna say, Andrew? I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh no, it's just like yeah, eighties love stories in general. It's like I, I don't know how some of those people work out in the movies they just make them work out and this one it's usually there's like at least a moment where you think it's like oh they have some type of 
common ground, common beliefs, something that connects them. But with this one, I was like, nope, they're not on the same page. They don't have all. All. anything in common except for their profession. Ugh. But I think we we also get a clear look at their, like, beyond the, the looks and, like, the, their intellectual incompatibility to me, especially when Tom explains that he feels like he's pretending to be a reporter and admits that he doesn't get the news he's talking about. I just... I'm like, ha- have you guys ever dated someone that you're just like, you are so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> and sometimes I wonder why I'm with you. <laughs> I had a moment like that with a previous boyfriend. And I was just like, oh. did I ever tell you about the time I went and saw Get Out? <laughs> this was like, I was thinking about it the other day and I got just <laughs> as heated as I did that day. We went to see Get Out. This was an ex. And um after the movie I was like oh my god that was so good he's like oh yeah and he's like I really I particularly love the fact that it wasn't even about anything it was just true horror and I was just like oh no are you the (laughs) dumbest man alive (laughs) are you the dumbest man alive (laughs) reaction (laughs) no he tried to tell me he's like I think you're just thinking too much about it I'm like I think you're not thinking about it at all (laughs) how do you not realize what like even the most basic Mm -hmm. like idea in that movie I'm like that was so on the nose it was a nose (laughs) (laughs) that's why he's an ex Mm -hmm. yep (laughs) but I think (laughs) I think the thing about that is, too, there's a difference between someone who is ignorant like that and then tries to fight you on it without even trying to understand your point of view compared Mm -hmm. to someone who is like, you know what, I didn't get it. Can you explain it to me? And in some sense, that's what Tom is. So I could see how they could try and make that work. But there is a point down the line where Tom changes and he's no longer this person who wants to be better. He just Mm -hmm. makes his own decisions that are not the best. That we'll get to later. But... Mm -hmm. At first, I could see them kind of trying to make it work because he's willing to try and be better. Um, but that would only work if he stays the same Tom and he doesn't. He doesn't. Does not. I like. I didn't really like him to begin with, especially after his little like t- yeah. temper tantrum here. But okay, I'm going to have you, Deanna, read what Jane says to him essentially when he's like, I don't really get the news. Can you help me? (laughs) But I think right there too, it just shows the audacity of him. Like, I don't actually get it. Can you explain it to me? Kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And she's just like, you're, are you fucking kidding me? Like Mm -hmm. someone who has put their entire life into this career and fighting against that. And this guy is just like, can you feel bad for me and help me? Mm-hmm. So I see why she was so cold at the end, because she was also like, "Oh, I'm gonna get laid." So she's doubly disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me read. <laughs> Jane, holding it in. I agree with you. You're not qualified. Letting it out. So get qualified. You can insist on being better prepared. You don't have to just leave it at it as is. Mimicking him. I don't write. I'm not schooled. I don't understand the news I'm reading. But at least I'm upset about it, folks. A beat. Then he mumbles softly to himself. Whoa, this was a mistake. 
Just what do you want from me anyway? Permission to be fake? Stop whining and do something about it. It's just like, damn. <laughs> she's not wrong. Like, she she's absolutely not wrong. But then he's like, I hated the way that you spoke to me just now. I'm like, she's not your dad, all right? She's not going <laughs> to baby you for being good-looking and being confused about Oh, my Sorry. gosh. That's what I was just like, is he fucking kidding me? Come, you come into my hotel room, and you don't give me a back massage. Then you want to come at me like, I'm so sick because I'm too good-looking. <laughs> but I'm really glad that you read those parentheticals because I wanted to do a quick point about parenthetical yes raise your hand if you've ever been personally victimized for the use of parenthetical in your script hands raised me too (laughs) me too all through college (laughs) all the time if you raise your hand out there listener i saw you don't even worry about it we feel you (laughs) i'm gonna i'm gonna break it down for you real quick so what is a parenthetical Literally, it's an explanatory word, phrase, or sentence inserted into a passage. In our case, it's dialogue. And surrounding it with cute little parentheses buttons. Um, Figuratively, it's a tool that screenwriters can use to clarify their intent in the dialogue and in the scene overall. So, if we're using the example of the dialogue that we just read, here we're seeing it used to establish more tendencies about Jane's character. Ultimately, through the use of parenthetical, we can sense that she's unwilling to sugarcoat the facts for Tom. Maybe she's even completely incapable of doing it because of who she is to her core, even though she really wants to sleep with him. And that's rough. The point is stop being so scared to use parentheticals. Screw the haters, okay? You can use them if you want to. They're a really great tool. Just please do not use them to state the obvious because we already know that. Seriously, use them if you're going to use them smartly. Do not use them to tell us something we can already tell just by reading the dialogue alone. And also be aware, so if you put like an action in a parenthetical, that there's a very clear point why he puts mimicking him in the parentheses. It's very mm-hmm. deliberate to show who she is. But don't get used to using parentheticals just because you want the actor to deliver it that way because that's kind of a slap in an actor's face but two that could easily change I mean the director could completely take that out because he's like well that's not what I'm feeling there blah 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 so don't waste your page space just make sure that it's delivered and it's doing something um don't tell people how to act don't tell people how to direct because you're gonna I mean people are gonna hate you mm-hmm it's a yep. team effort team as effort. a screenwriter you're you are producing the roadmap for the rest of the team. You're the first line of defense, but you're not the last line. It's, there's a lot that goes into this. All mm-hmm. you're doing is basically giving people directions and then they're going to cook the dinner. Mm-hmm. Unless you want to do everything like he did. Oh yeah. Unless you want to be by all over. means. You, you put do notes in there for you yourself. <laughs> if you need to you put parentheses to remind yourself what you wanted to do there, do it. But I mean, that's if you're doing everything yo damn self. other than that just be careful (laughs) Mm -hmm. be careful last thoughts on tom's temper tantrum i think it's a quick call back to perpetual childhood tendencies it's been evidence that he's always struggled with the intellectual side of things and to have it thrown in his face might have been a tipping point 
And of course she's right, but it doesn't mean he doesn't resent his own shortcomings. These are already such complicated characters by page 20. Very well-rounded. I'm taking notes now. Because that, by this point, so this is the end of act one, essentially. You want your characters to feel like how we're describing them. Us as writers, we can understand these characters backwards and forwards. And it's not just because we write ourselves. It's because these are real, these feel like real people. These feel like people I've met, you've met, we've all met before, or at least heard about. So that's what you want your characters to kind of emulate. You want your, you want people to understand your characters as easily as we can understand these ones. <laughs> Agree. Yeah. All right. Moving on to act two, which I titled, get your shit together, Jane. You're not yourself. <laughs> so everyone knows someone who they feel is somehow miraculously at their level or beyond, seemingly with little to no effort and who doesn't even seem to really care about the thing they're besting you at. For Jane and Aaron, it's Tom, and his first date opens up Act 2. This is another reason why I resent Tom. I'm just like, you cannot open your eyes for five seconds and understand that you existing in this professional space is already a slap in the face of these people who have worked their lives to get here. You're making a fortune, and you're telling people you don't understand the news that you are reading. <laughs> I can understand the resentment, and that's why I think that this is a really perfect first day for him to have because he thinks he's going to come into this new like studio and run it essentially when he's in when he's being taken in and shown around they're just like oh what what do you really feel that you excel at what would you like to do and he immediately goes for anchor it's just like sit down <laughs> you showed up five seconds ago you think we're gonna put you in the chair <laughs> They're like, no, you have to do some work to get that. Mm -hmm. But I do think what I love about this, this opening is that we get to see Jane in her element. We've been learning about her little by little. And we saw a little bit of it when her and Aaron were on that um, coming back home case uh, when they were interviewing the guy that was coming back from war. But here we get to see her like, in action and it's so this is the part where I think Ange you and I might have been like this is stress inducing yes I cannot I can't sit in her chair but it was really fascinating to watch and I think this is a lot of where Brooks's news background comes into play because you feel the energy off page and it makes the viewing so much better when you see it on the screen so we're getting two really distinct things done at once um, which is Scene 25, Editing Room Night. It's an exclusive insider look at the inner workings of a news station and a look at the job of a producer in real time. So I like to think of this as, like, if you had no idea what a producer did at all and you're watching this movie th for, for the first time, you know, it probably could be inspiring for someone that doesn't really know what they want to do and they're just like, oh, wow, that looks like my cup of tea. It was a really good look at, like, this is what this person does. If this feels like you, this is what you can expect if you want to do this job. So I really like that. It shows that the writer really researched what they were doing, which is very important. Always research things. Even if you feel like it's a field that you are very familiar with, you probably don't know everything about it. So this scene overall goes on to be extremely tense. 
Um, the use of the countdown to air really made me worried as a reader and it translates really easily to the screen as a device to build tension. And it's something I do remember us being taught about in school is just like, if you're ever pressed for, if you ever really need something that's gonna build tension easily, use a time clock, like use something that's going to physically count down the time until something big happens. Cause it forces the characters to really act on what you want them to in a fast amount of time. Mm -hmm. So fast forward to the Central American jungle, Aaron as the superior love interest, in my opinion, in every way. <laughs> we agree, we stand. <laughs> we stand, Aaron. <laughs> um, Aaron is a genuinely good guy and I like him and I like the added sentiment here of repeating his speech. So when he's talking about um, before they start shooting and it's starting to it's starting to get intense in Central America because where they are is like technically isn't it a battleground they're it's just a war they're, zone. it's a war zone so um obviously it's not safe and in the script they cut this out of the film which I'm sad that they did because I thought it was a really great line where he's just like oh um every woman if if I die tell every woman I ever loved that I was thinking about her at the end and there's an added detail here where he the um, the soldiers look at him wondering what he said in English, and he makes a point to repeat it in Spanish so they can laugh too, which I really loved. I think they try to remedy that because he still says it, but they like they don't have the same reaction as they do on the page in the movie. But before mm -hmm. then, someone in the movie they compliment him on mm -hmm. how well it vanishes, and I guess that was, they were trying to leave that in to make up for it, but. I, I would have preferred this. Yeah. I would have thought it was really nice. I think here too, on the page, you see Erin and her, like their relationship, you can tell that they're basically best friends and they are really close. But here, I mean, when you see the actors and how they played it out, I mean, I don't understand why she didn't know that he liked her. Yeah, I don't understand either. They would be almost like nose to nose sometimes and mm -hmm. I'm just curious as to she's not daft like what I don't know maybe she knew but she thought it was just like ah it's just a cute crush or something that's one thing that did bother me about Jane's character for someone that's just like she's built up as like oh this person's incapable of love yeah. she feels it seems like feelings are such a blase thing for her I'm just like, maybe that's why you have relationship issues and you can't, you can't really connect to someone because you don't understand the gravity of the feelings until she blows up and she's like, oh, I guess that's what emotions are like. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's, that is her character. But again, I guess I just, it's, it's a stereotype, mm -hmm. you know? So that's why I don't like Jane. She's a stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> We're not friends. Oh my gosh. Um, so I, th I think also the scene really makes broadcast journalism seem like an adventure. I, I don't know. If I wasn't so scared, I probably, if I was one of those types of people that were like living for adventure, I probably would be interested in this profession because I'm just like, look at all the cool stuff they get to do. Look at all the crazy wild things, like the life experience they get. I'm just like, that's why they would have been the perfect couple, damn it. Jane. 
<laughs> they would have been a power couple for sure. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> And when I looked at live, and I was like, look at all the ulcers <laughs> and the heart problems. I was like, no, can't do it. Well, I think that's oh, another gosh. thing that he did really well was show the life of a broadcast news person because all people really see is the anchor. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, how glamorous, how this, how that. That's a rough life. Yeah. You're traveling all the time. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes... All you get in return is the freezing cold shoulders of Bill Roarish, millionaire anchor. <laughs> I thought it was super fucked up when, in front of everyone, Bill completely denies Aaron his five seconds of fame. He's on the he's on the phone on the screen, and we could see him, and he's he's like, "Oh, I have to go. I have I have to go over some of the paper," and he's just sitting there. After Aaron's not allowed to talk to him and have him praise him, it's like, Aaron deserves better. Question about that. Uh-huh. So in, in, <laughs> on screen, when he's leaving that scene after being embarrassed like that, he says, you make one comment about the guy's hairline and he hates you forever, something like that. Is that mm-hmm. on the page? I feel like it was. It was just like an offhanded comment or something. I don't remember it, but it's so, it makes so much more sense on screen now. Mm-hmm. It puts yeah. so much more in perspective. <laughs> <laughs> because he totally would, Aaron would put his foot in his mouth like that and then ruin everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's his luck. That's his luck. But it felt like a good, like, character suffering moment. Yes. Like, you're totally allowed to do that. Even though we love Aaron, it's just like, it had to happen. <laughs> Especially while Tom was there. Um, It feels like Bill Rorish's character is really important to the truth theme of the movie. Um, Because as an anchor, he has a salary people can't fathom. And is also simultaneously like a legend from a dying era of journalism at the time. I think it's a crazy juxtaposition. And he embodies both ends of the spectrum at once. And the thing that really bothered me is like at the end of the movie when they're all being laid off and yada yada and the 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 overhead of of that well most <laughs> the overhead of that um that news bureau was like oh well you know you could make the blow a lot less harsh if you just you know knock off a million or two from your salary and it's just like why is an anchor getting paid a million, period? Like, I don't understand that part of it. I could see where Jane's issues come from. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I also don't understand why it's just, like, even she's, like, starstruck by Bill Roarish, which is interesting to me. When she well, gets that call, it's just, like... Well, I think she's not... She's starstruck by the other end of the spectrum that she misses, that she dreams about. I don't mm-hmm. think she's necessarily starstruck because he makes a million dollars like other people would. I think it's she respects the work that he's done throughout his career. Right. And we can't change where he ended up. <laughs> Money changes you. That's what happens when you lose your humility. <laughs> um, okay. So I wanted to touch on something that I think is really important to mention. Um, I'm, I'm calling this section, You Can't Fake Necessity about Buddy. Uh, 
if you didn't read along with us, you don't know who Buddy is because he was taken out of the movie like he should have been. So Buddy's character was basically Tom's stepping stone. Tom showed up to this news bureau and he really didn't have anything to offer and he wanted to be on stories and, but he didn't have any type of contact. He's new in town. And then out of nowhere, Buddy just appears and he has all the government secrets and he's just giving them to Tom because Buddy is a gay character and he thinks Tom is attractive. So Buddy's character to me was undoubtedly inserted as a matter of necessity. Tom had to get the leg up somehow and I think that made Buddy feel super forced on the page. And once Tom becomes anchor, Buddy is immediately tossed from the story. He just gets thrown like, oh, hey, do you have, do you have anything for me? He's like, oh, I broke up with my roommate who was the real contact. He's like, oh, well, it's fine. I'm anchor now anyway. And Buddy's like, goodbye. I'll always remember you. And I'm like, is this seriously the way? <laughs> my whole problem with that is like, Everything you're saying is completely true. Like, Buddy was super forced. Mm-hmm. But I feel like when they took him out on the screen, his rise is really, like, you go from him being nothing to him suddenly being everything. Yeah. They, they didn't do anything to remedy Buddy. Yeah. And that is also a problem. I think that's yeah. the laziness. First mm-hmm. of all, Buddy was lazy writing. And then yeah. taking him out was just a quick fix. And then they just shows oh we're not going to address that at all but the thing that I thought was weird in the actual film was that they still had those moments where they mentioned where buddy would have been inserted like oh can you get your contact on the phone but you just don't know who that is that is (laughs) like where did he get that if he was a newbie and knew no one and was a crybaby how did he yeah yeah I just think okay so Basically, the point of we all need to learn (laughs) from Buddy's demise because it is lazy writing. When you when you feel yourself putting anything, even if it's not a character, if it's a location, if it's a scene, if you feel yourself putting in anything like that as a necessity, like for the simple act of giving you something that makes something else make sense. It doesn't belong in the script. You can do better. It's just like, don't ever put something in the script that you don't absolutely need because it's just wasting page space and it's wasting our damn time. (laughs) Go back, take a look at what you actually need and just do some rewrites. Don't Mm -hmm. insert something and then, yeah, you're better than that. (laughs) For me, I feel like, oh, go ahead, Ange. Oh yeah, no, I was just saying it's the whole setup versus payoff argument where you have to earn the how you get to point A, from point A to point B, you have to earn that journey. And it's just, they didn't really earn it either way, not on the mm-hmm. page and not on the screen. Mm-hmm. That's a really good way of putting, putting it, Ange. Yeah. I just think if you find yourself, at least with a character, a good rule of thumb that I put into practice is to use what you have. So if you take a look at all of your other existing fully developed characters, you cannot tell me None of them can take on the job of whatever you're trying to accomplish while they simultaneously do what you had initially set out for them to do. Don't just create a character out of thin air and then dispose of them when your, your thing is finished. That's not, it's not going to work. People can see right through that. You're not slick. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. So moving on to the moment Jane realizes she has a crush, which is specifically scene 56 interior Ernie Merriman's Virginia home day. So I think that there's a strange adolescent quirkiness to Jane and her pursuit of love. And this feels like the only area of life she can't bring herself to be confident in because she's such a force in every other aspect of her life. Um, And she, of course, falls for the hottest guy in the office. And Jennifer approaching her about him piles on that intimidation. In my mind, during this scene, because we're in the scene, we're basically at this this get-together where all these, the people from the office are together just kind of, like, relaxing. And it's kind of like a kickback, but for work. I don't know. It's not an office party because it's at somebody's house, but you know what it I mean. It is. It's a brunch that the boss is holding. Yes. Show appreciation and build morale and teamwork for his, yes. his newsroom. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> and... Jennifer, who is another reporter, who is obviously probably the way that if I'm thinking in Jane's mind is like the the like look equivalent of Tom, she approaches Jane about like, hey, I noticed that you hang out with Tom a lot. Do you mind if I see him? Basically, do you mind if I have sex with him? <laughs> and in that moment, for me, it felt like Jane was thinking like, uh, yes, I do mind, and I don't understand why it doesn't make sense to me, because I know I don't have a chance, um, but there was this relatable train of thought, it's just like, oh, why would I think I have a chance? Hot people belong together, all aboard to Potatoville. (laughs) (laughs) But here's the thing, so when I was really disappointed in the translation to the screen, is that a lot of the little details about explaining why Jane develops this crush aren't on screen anymore. Yes. So it kind of feels when you're watching it, like it comes out of nowhere and you're like, I don't know why you like him, Jane. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. <laughs> but if you read it, you understand these little details here and there. Yeah. So I think it that just, was a disservice. It comes across so strange. It's just like, yeah, I mean, they spend a lot of time together because they work together. And also he really wants Jane to help him. And she's just like, <laughs> you're annoying. Get away from me. <laughs> the, the moment that we really get with them together where where it makes the most sense. And this is like one of the most iconic scenes in the film. This is what people always reference is like Jane and Tom, where Jane's in Tom's ear. Because from this party, they get a call that something's breaking. Like news is breaking now. We all have to go back to the studio. Jane, you're going to be head producer and we're going to put Tom in the chair and he's going to anchor. And it turns into this like, weird the way they describe it is always weird to me because it's just like oh it's like great sex you were in my head and we were just feeding off of each other and the energy and on the page it didn't read as nearly as creepy as it came off on (laughs) the scene that acting choice was odd that That was in like whoa dude (laughs) that was too much back up back up back off (laughs) i'm like that is a sexual harassment at work case yes (laughs) Can you please times, but still, <laughs> could you please get off of my swivel chair? <laughs> like that's the that's the first time we see genuine chemistry between them, and then of course Tom has to come in and freaking ruin it with his creepiness. But then we also get like while that's happening, Aaron totally gets 
booted out of the whole exchange they decide they don't need him and of course he's bitter because he's like i've been here for fucking ever i'm a i'm the best reporter on the team and this guy just shows up and he gets to sit in the chair for something breaking he's never done that before so this whole time aaron's like sitting at his house like wallowing in self-pity and afterward jane goes to visit him and he ends up like professing his love to her and The thing about that is I feel kind of bad because at this stage, I get the sense that this is going to be another big loss for Aaron. He's always losing, always. And it makes me sad because he's totally worthwhile. First, like that whole exchange, that whole argument on page wasn't as loud as it was on screen to me. (laughs) No, you're thinking about the other time where like after the... I call it adult prom that day. Okay, yes. Yeah, this the, is the one okay. where, the where first he's drunk one. on the stoop. Yes. And okay. he's, he kisses her and he's like, well, I felt something. And I'm just like, <laughs> Jane's just laughing at it like it's cute. I'm like, that's his actual feelings, Jane. <laughs> oh, but then in this part, she, he almost says what he's feeling. And then he's like, that's all I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? And I was like, uh, we already know what you're thinking. Come on. but Jane doesn't she doesn't but the thing is it's different on the page the delivery and I think it's a big point because on the page he starts to say that he's in love with her but then he stops himself Mm -hmm. on the screen he says I want to talk about the person I like so much and I'm just like I hate that I feel like it's like (laughs) out of character for him too almost Mm -hmm. compared to what's on the page whiny yeah I'm just like Aaron you are not a whiner okay you are the man with the clapbacks don't get this. <laughs> what are you picking up from Tom? <laughs> oh my gosh. But I think having him do that there, it kind of, because we're, Jane's starting to realize that she has a crush on Tom and having this happen right at this moment, having Aaron start to profess his love for her is kind of perfect. It's very strategic because now you've solidified there is a triangle at play and Jane just as Jane notices her feelings for Tom, it only makes sense for Aaron to also be like, but me! (laughs) I want to take a minute to talk about that weirdest fuck sex scene (laughs) between Tom and Jennifer. Scene 80, interior Jennifer's apartment night. Um, her climax scream? (laughs) I don't understand it. (laughs) What? So I actually have, it's interesting, and it's interesting that they decided to take this out, but keep in the part about, do you two funny rabbits? <laughs> I hated that. Um, so in the scene, Tom and Jennifer are having sex, and her climax scream is, damn all you sons of bitches, oh shit, you bastards. <laughs> And I, I feel like if you've been reading along with my column on the blog, in February, I covered Writing the Romantic Comedy by Billy Murdit. And he actually covers making dynamic sex scenes, which I actually, bear with me, think this is a dynamic sex scene because in the writing of Billy Murdit, he says like, when you're writing romantic comedy, you really have to consider, like, yes, obviously there's the romance element. And sometimes that that does mean that we're going to want to see that level of chemistry with people. It means you might have to have a sex scene in your script. Um, 
But the thing about that is like, you really have to remind yourself when you're doing that, that you're not writing a porno. You don't have to write out, don't waste page space saying like, and then he did this and then she did this. And like, that's not really serving the character. We're not learning anything. And that's not what your audience is here for. They're here for a rom-com, okay? They know where the pornos are. <laughs> They're here for a reason. So here we're getting an insider glimpse at Jennifer's frame of mind, I think, which is why I'm considering this a dynamic sex scene because using her climax queen, we actually can learn a lot about her. What I get is from this, we know that she is a strong female working in a male dominated profession. And we can tell that despite her success, she still resents that factor. Like she builds up the tension for all the male energy that she has to fight against all the time. And this is where she gets to release it. But then on the page, when she does that, she apologizes to Tom. And it makes me think that she she gets the sense that her intensity can be a turnoff to men. And she brings that energy. She brings this energy from the field to the bedroom. And I actually really appreciate it. And I'm kind of sad that they took that out. I'm sad that James took that out because I thought it was really interesting. I think that Jennifer is not that important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that she's there, one, to boost Tom's confidence and to act as the, like, like the like motivation. Rival. The Well, the motivation for Jane to be like, I have to, if I like him, I need to go after him kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's why, one, Yes, it's a di- dynamic sex scene, but I don't think it should be in the story because she's not as important as the other ones are. Mm-hmm. And she she has a very clear, there's a clear reason why she's in it. She's not like Buddy, but I don't think that we need to know all that stuff you just said about her because it's not mm-hmm. relevant to the story being told. So I didn't mind it not being on screen. Um, the bunny rabbit thing was weird, but again, I think that shows... Um, Tom gaining confidence in himself. And I think that's why they left that piece in there. Does that make sense? Yeah. I was upset. Well, the thing that really put me off is like, I didn't understand why we'd need, if we were going to have a sex scene at all in this film, why it had to be with Jennifer. So I'm just like, isn't the whole point supposed to be we're we're following? Okay. I'm going to preface this by saying, I don't really watch a lot of romantic comedies. They're not really my thing. (laughs) They're not really my thing, but I try. I try to broaden my horizons. But the thing about this is it feels like it goes kind of off formula because I don't think, as an audience member, I really don't care about Tom and Jennifer having a one-night stand. I think it works against Tom as a love interest. I think it, it, in my mind, it should have played up Aaron's character a bit more in the triangle, and it didn't really do that at all. It just made it so that, like, for all we know, I mean, Jane could deduce that they were probably going to do this, but then I don't understand why she still felt the need to waste her time with him because he wasn't seriously trying to chase her. He was, he was obviously free and willing to do Jennifer. So I was just like, (laughs) I don't understand why Jane decided like, no, instead of just realizing I already have everything I need in Aaron, I have to send Jennifer to Alaska. (laughs) Because she's human. Uh, that's I a guess lie. that makes sense. And he's that like, he's dredging up these feelings that she hasn't had 
either before or in a very long time. So people don't normally handle those well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that makes sense to me in that respect. But I do wish we got more Aaron in the love triangle mm -hmm. because his bits and pieces are so, they're just so much less than they yeah. should be. Yeah. Yeah, generally in a love triangle, you you focus on the people in the triangle, and at some point it does seem more balanced, and then you can start telling which way they're leaning towards as the person gets less and less, but he just had so much less. And then and throwing in Jennifer, it's like, you, it's not a square, so why are you here? But, <laughs> mm -hmm. but the thing that, like, always, not always, the thing that really, like, put me off, I guess, is that it just, like, it feels like despite all of this, Tom still wins and that makes that moves me into my next point which is tom's date rape story to scene 91 interior newsroom night and at this point um, i've come up with the big question which is like who is the film's antagonist at this point who do you guys think it is i think it's tom but at the same time i think it's like a little bit of jane versus jane <laughs> it's true oh, so i think a point should be made yeah yeah I don't know, but yeah, but I, that Jane versus Jane really is interesting. But too, it could also be the overall theme of like the news and the way that the news is going is the antagonist. And you see Jane slowly kind of drifting to the dark side almost, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess it depends on how you, how broad do you want to get? But I think the immediate one could just be Jane versus Jane. That's a really interesting perspective. I did not think of that. The way that I I looked at it. So first I looked up define an antagonist. Script Magazine has a really great article on this. And that's where I pulled this little excerpt from. Definitely recommend that you read that if you are interested, which you should be. <laughs> um, so Script Magazine defines an antagonist as um, it's a character that stands in direct opposition of the protagonist's goals, often referred to as the nemesis, bad guy, or villain. This character needs to be as smart, if not smarter, than the hero in, in order to raise the stakes of the story. So when I think about that, and I think about the way that this dynamic is going, at least when I'm looking at it from the love triangle perspective, to me, I want the antagonist to be Tom. But the way it's playing out, it feels like the antagonist is Aaron. And that's not to say that I think Aaron is a bad guy, nemesis, whatever. It's just the way that he's being played out on the screen or in this narrative in general. Something that this writer does extremely well in this script is presenting balanced perspectives of the protagonist, which unfortunately seems like if it's between these two, it's Tom and and Jane, because Aaron is working against Jane as well, without intending to, because she wants to be with Tom for whatever reason. In <laughs> um, writing a good rule of thumb when creating a well-rounded antagonist is not to create someone that is just going to get in the protagonist's way because he's a bad guy or because he's evil, but it's creating a character that is that could technically be the protagonist if we were watching their movie. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's someone that, like, because the way that we were always, it was always explained in film school was just, like, your antagonist isn't there for the sake of, like, giving your hero a hard time. They're there with their own goals, their own values, and they're simply trying to, just like the protagonist, reach a point of 
catharsis in their own story. And I think that that's basically what Aaron is doing. If this were Aaron's movie, it, Tom would certainly be the villain, but as we're seeing, because Aaron has to keep losing and losing and losing, it is not his movie. It is clearly Jane and Tom's movie. That's true. If it's you don't So know. you think Tom is the main protagonist, not Jane? I think Jane's the main protagonist, but I think in the love triangle, it's going against it's Aaron. If it's the two guys against each other, I think Aaron is being treated like the antagonist. Yeah, so if Tom is Jane's love goal, then Aaron is a protagonist. If we're going back to the news story, then it kind of switches. But since this movie drifts away from the news and goes, focuses more on the romance, then that is true. Aaron would be the opposing figure. I don't think he's very strong in that sense then. Because yes, he goes off on Jane and everything, but he and Tom actually become okay throughout it and he's not doing anything to necessarily necessarily like ruin Tom. Mm. And then when it comes to the romance stuff, yes, he tries, I mean, he tries to talk Jane out of it so I can see it there. But at the same time, he's not doing anything to, to stop it, per se, except for that one argument. I think he's not doing anything that's like, like, he's not actually trying to do anything to stop it. But I think he is, like, without realizing, putting, like, creating some form of resistance. As the reason why I bring this up here is like, why am I bringing this up here? <laughs> The this feels like this scene in particular feels like a turning point for all three of the major players in the story. So Tom is taking his date rape story as a win. Jane is relenting and giving in to Tom as a professional and as a crush. And Aaron is losing again, which is cementing him into the antagonist role because he's playing on that he thinks Tom is a joke. Tom in this profession is a joke. And he's never going to sit and talk with Jane about how great Tom is because he doesn't believe that. He thinks Tom is not a professional and he doesn't deserve what he's getting. And I think the way that that, the way that that comes across, even if he's not outright saying Tom should be fired or Jane, I don't think that you're, you should be going after Tom. I think his presence in a lot of these scenes builds him up to be an antagonist because he's creating resistance. I don't think it's very clear. I don't think it's clear enough in this writing. Mm. Like, I sh- I shouldn't have to have you explain it that hard for me to know who the, like, to accept who the antagonist is. Because yeah. like, that we came up with other antagonists right off the bat that made sense to all of us that were, that's from the story. Like, I'm mm-hmm. not arguing with you, like, and see it, but I just think it shouldn't be that hard. Well, no, I know. I, no. I don't even think I'm 100% right. That's just the way I interpreted it. I love your Jane versus Jane. I do think Jane is her own antagonist. <laughs> <laughs> That's just one way to look at it. That's one way that I look at it. And I think this scene also expounds upon the central theme or the question of the film, which is what is real, genuine, true broadcast news and how can we differentiate it from the fluff? Do you guys feel like his date rape story was news? Because I do. I don't like the way that he did it as we find out, but I do think that that's genuine news. It's something that maybe a lot of people don't realize is happening, or at least at the time didn't realize it was something that they should. Because I think a part of the news is to inform viewers of like the dangers that could be very real. It doesn't always have to be outside of the realm of what's in your general vicinity. It's a feature story. 
mm-hmm. which is slightly different. It's not hard news, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, which is not belittling what the subject is about because it's a terrible thing. Um, but it's it's a feature. So he is used to covering like hard news, what people consider like, you know, everything he covers, war. I think he well, Oh, that guy his- coming home. That guy mm-hmm. coming home. But that war. was like coming home from war. So I think yeah. he does mostly like international right. relations news. Right, so that's, music. that's what's considered hard news. So for a really long time, that's traditionalists were like, that's the news. None of this other stuff is the news. So Tom is, this is a feature, which means it wasn't like, yes, it's happening all around. So obviously it's timely, but it's not like breaking news or things like that. So some people would see it as fluff back then. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely news. It's just a different type of news. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point. I'll think on that. I have my BA in journalism. That is true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is true. You of all people would know. I completely forgot about that. (laughs) Makes me kind of sad. So, okay. I remember. I thought that's what she asked you. I thought she was positing the question to you. That's why I didn't say anything. I was like, she must be asking Deanna. (laughs) No, I, I forget all the time, but that, but. (laughs) That's why I don't mean it in a bad way. I know you wrote you wrote for newspapers. Listen, my friend Deanna is acclaimed. She is <laughs> she is the editor in chief of our blog. She is <laughs> she seems really dopey, but she's actually really smart. She's extremely <laughs> brilliant. If there are any. <laughs> If anyone's looking for a freelance journalist, holler at my girl. <laughs> I didn't mean to make you feel bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, no, see, I, back in the day, uh, radio and TV were in the same group. And so you had to do journalist, journalism classes. And then they eventually started breaking up the components but I don't remember as much as like I only remember little tidbits here and there but I was like I I really love the history but I can't remember everything as much I need to go back to my books and relearn some of these terms that's why I was like yes D please explain I don't remember again like this just speaks to the time right so this is a time when we're transitioning from one era to a new era and part of the new era isn't all that bad it's doing features like Tom's that bring attention to things that aren't you know immediate breaking news which is something new but back then like you could totally see why Aaron was like oh well you're just using this young woman's story but in reality Tom is even though it turns out he was stupid about it um Mm -hmm. Tom is trying to present an important case to the world Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the funniest scene in this whole film which is the sweaty anchor scene oh my god poor Aaron (laughs) yes but I was, this is one thing that was, it was just as funny on the page as it was on the screen. It was really writing to the comedy. I love the consistency across mediums. And it was funny for different reasons from script to screen, even though it didn't run exactly how it did on the page. The situation is inherently funny and it was going to make me laugh regardless. And I think that's something to consider for comedy writers. It's just like, don't focus so much on the details. If you know you have something that is inherently funny, the minute details may change, 
But if the core of it is funny, it's going to be funny regardless. I loved Mm -hmm. this scene. Because, I mean, the idea of an anger just bursting out into a sweating episode is hilarious just when you leave it in one statement like that. And there are a million ways to show that. Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily need all that detail. You just need to say, he has a sweating episode kind of thing. <laughs> no, it's so funny. I did, I did miss, like, one of the jokes was when someone was telling him about his hair, and he's like, I have an ethnic curl. What do you? <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> again, like, I feel like that showed more of, like, Aaron's personality, too. And then, mm-hmm. like, they skipped some little details like that. And those are some of the details that I wish they would have kept in because it shows – not only the situation as funny, but also his personality. Mm-hmm. So some of those I missed, but it was, it was hilarious. <laughs> it was a beautifully, I love that scene. You feel so bad. Yeah, you do. And there's nothing you can do. Oh, mm-hmm. They it tried, was... they tried their hardest, but I yes. know. I love like the lasting scene where they're just like blow drying him and they're like, we're back on <laughs> 10 seconds. And he's just like, I know, they tried to get another shirt. I was like, what's another shirt going to do in 10 seconds? What are you trying to do? I wish they would have, though, because the one guy was like, oh, he's sweating more than, who was it? Than Nixon ever sweat. Than Nixon? Uh-huh. <laughs> ever looked up, like, that video of Nixon sweating? It was a lot. Like, a lot. <laughs> so I, I actually wish they would have gone, like, with more <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. It's so funny. Oh, poor Aaron. Poor Aaron. But he's he's the true hero of the film. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, while, while that is happening, everybody else is at adult prom night, aka the correspondence <laughs> dinner. <laughs> and this is this is where we finally get the chance to see Jane and Tom together. And across the script and the screen, it really bothered me that the chemistry didn't feel like it was there. It felt very weird. This was the, like, if we were ever going to be convinced that they they belong together, this was the time, and it didn't happen. For me, this entire film, I haven't, I didn't trust Tom. I don't trust Tom. I'm never going to trust Tom. (laughs) And Jane... Jane feels desperate to me here. Like, she's so desperate for this to work. Like, yes, finally, my moment. I look fabulous for once. And Jennifer's in Alaska. (laughs) Like, this entire film, I'm just, like, I don't see why she has a crush on him. I don't Mm -hmm. get it. It doesn't, like, okay, you liked his work on his feature. Um, That's cool. But everything else, it just doesn't make sense to me. They're just like her and everybody else in the office. Did you see those girls watching the feature broadcast? Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. So this is after, after we, we see um, Jane and Tom have their moment. If that's what you want to call it, where they're outside. And can I just say that was a really creepy, weird moment where he's just filling on her boob. Yeah. That was so <laughs> weird. Like, what are you, huh? <laughs> it was something. Maybe he thought it was romantic. I did not feel that. And it seemed like Jane didn't either. Cause she's like, could you please kiss me while you do that? At least like, don't she just make eye contact and touch my <laughs> 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 My God. 
<laughs> it's like you want to say, it's like, is this a thing of the 80s? Is, or was it different times? It's like, what is I this think it's, to- it's just like how they, they make fun of when guys write what they think will turn on women <laughs> or what they think <laughs> yeah. women like. I feel like this is part of that. Like, that's not... <laughs> That's not a thing. Not but it. Maybe, maybe <laughs> Mr. Writer director thought that was a thing. I'm yeah, here to say. Too. I'm here to say that it's not. Um, <laughs> so here's the thing: if you're gonna talk, if you're gonna have anything to do with like trying to turn a female on, and you are not a female writer, please call your friends, your female friends, and ask them. That's all you got. Just ask. It's fine. Ask somebody. <laughs> And if you want to know what not to do, if you Google it, there is a list of like a hundred things that are not sexy to women, <laughs> uh, like directly pulled from like novels and movies that males have written. Um, someone did a really good article listing all of them um, saying, yeah, no, that's not a thing. So do, that's part of your research. If you have this kind of thing, do that for research. Yes. Yes. So... <laughs> After that weird time when Jane is like, oh, I got to go and check in with Aaron and see how his broadcast went. We already know it went real bad. Um, she gets to Aaron's house and initially it's like old times and you could tell Jane, I just say, I thought Jane was kind of being a little bit rude, but I totally understand from a teenager perspective. It's just like, you remember when you had an obligation, but you really wanted to be with that cute guy that you have some chemistry with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're just like, um, are you really in a crisis? Because I have to go. I have plans. <laughs> and Aaron is seriously in a crisis. But the thing is, Jane just didn't handle it well, I, I don't think. And I definitely think she was being real dramatic when she's like, this is important to me. That, that, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, that whole scene was not what I expected after reading on the Yes! That was was way too dramatic on the screen. Yeah. It was too much. (laughs) I didn't, I, I didn't get it. I was just like, but you know what I did really love was Aaron saying that Tom's the devil. That, yeah, that was awesome. That whole, like, (laughs) yeah. He's like, what do you think the devil's really gonna look like? (sighs) That was hilarious. That was my favorite part of that argument. <laughs> you think he's gonna be off? Well, people are gonna funny. be looking at a tail really weird, but <laughs> that was funny. No, I love it. And it, it, what it once again, it's just like Aaron. I think Aaron and Jane's characters have that in common, where they can't help but be real all the time. Mm-hmm. They can't turn it off and try and like lay the charm on that just doesn't work because they're not they're genuine people they don't feel the need to play up to anybody's standard they're just like we have high standards and we're not going to lower them so that you feel better about yourself and I think it was just kind of a rude awakening for Jane to hear that from Aaron but it was he was right he was 100% right I'm just like Jane you are so stupid if you think that you and Tom have anything remotely close to what you and Aaron have (laughs) but at the same time I can understand it sometimes there is that situation of like you have a really good friend that feels that way for you and you just the chemistry is not there for you what I don't appreciate is Jane pretending that she doesn't see that from the beginning what I appreciate about Aaron is he doesn't go on like the like the 
friend zone rant because the friend zone is bullshit. Um, mm-hmm. So he's not like, how dare you not like me? I'm the one who's been like, he doesn't make her feel like she should return those feelings. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He just tries to make her see, you know, why Tom is bad. He doesn't force like him onto her. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what I really like about his characters. Like he's, he's still a very good friend throughout, even if it hurts him to know that Jane doesn't want to end up with him. He's not beyond the point of saying, Hey, even if you don't end up with me, I still don't think Tom is right for you as your friend. And he does that until the end. And that's what I really respect. He's a really good character. Mm -hmm. Really good character. He's a good guy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want an Aaron. I want an Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so moving on through to like the last leg of this, I just want to mention, because it, it ended up being a really big thing, did the layoffs feel abrupt to you guys? Like, the whole dismantling of the, the news, that studio in particular? No. Because I know they mentioned it early on, but it when it happened, it didn't feel, I don't know, it didn't feel right. I think the layoffs in real life feel abrupt anyway, so. Mm-hmm. Wait, so are you saying that it didn't feel abrupt to you, or it... Or it was abrupt. Me? No, uh, Mercedes. Oh, no, I was saying it felt abrupt to me. That's how layoffs work. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of get blindsided. Yeah. <laughs> it just felt so unfortunate. I Like, I guess that's how it's supposed to feel, even though they, they kind of, like, warned the audience ahead of time. When it actually happened, it felt very, like, uh, I don't know. I, it felt like... On the surface, it felt like a way to get all three of these characters in a corner and force them to make a move and then accept that they're all going their separate ways. It's like either you one of somebody needs to make a move on somebody because now that it's reintroducing the ticking time bomb. It's just like big changes are happening. But so. it was a realistic ticking mm-hmm. time bomb. And yeah. I think that's why it's acceptable in my eyes. And they yeah. did set I it up at the beginning. That. Yeah, they did set it up. I accepted it. it was just like, I guess I've just never experienced that. And that speaks to my, I've been lucky up to this point to never really know big layoff like that. Mm-hmm. So it just, that might resonate with a different audience than it did to me. But I was just like, this feels so abrupt, which is why I'm just like, why didn't Bill Rorish just let go of one million <laughs> That is my biggest problem with this whole thing. Like, the audacity of this man. I want to be here to make everyone feel better. Bitch, fuck you. (laughs) No one gives a damn about you if they just lost their job. What are you talking about? I want to take everyone out to eat. Give me a job back. What do you... Yeah. But I'll buy my own food. Like, that's just how big his ego was at that point. He felt he was important. It was important for him to be there. For what? What are you going to do? You don't even know half these people. Mm-hmm. Mm. He's just like, if we're not here during the hard times, are we even really journalists? <laughs> the audacity. <laughs> I did find it interesting that they that Aaron mentioned, like, this is one story they're not going to cover. Because <laughs> if they had just cut, did budget cuts at the top, they definitely could have saved that, that bureau. But they didn't. So uh, yeah. that was frustrating to me. Yeah. A failing newsroom is not going to report on how, how it's failing. 
Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. That's, that's a rule, right? You're not supposed to make yourself part of the story, really. You're not supposed to be part of the story, but I mean, there's a, things like this should be covered because it's one of those things where you're doing massive layoffs in one, a very important aspect of American life. And then two, you're getting rid of like people at the bottom when the people at the top are just thriving. But I mean, again, if a studio has to do massive layoffs, they don't want to report on it because that's not going to look good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to show that you're struggling. That takes us back to the real thing. (laughs) Because essentially the way that rounds out is that news is selling out to celebrity. It really is. That's maybe that's what made, I didn't feel good. Like it made me kind of sick to watch the layoff scene it didn't feel good, especially when Bill Roris showed up. I was just like, ugh. But you know what did make me feel better? When the guy's like, well, you know, I'm not too old to feel resentment towards being labeled early retirement. Oh, it's like, oh, yeah, I of course. you die. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, if there's anything I could do, well, I hope you die soon. <laughs> was the greatest line. <laughs> and he said it so seriously. He was like, all right, bye. Mm-hmm. And Paul just stares at him and we're like yeah he he meant that Paul fuck you he meant that mm-hmm. no I okay but here's here's the thing that gets me Tom proposing that random trip to Jane this makes things feel rushed in my mind where they're in that weird like side room where Jane's just like why don't you feel as bad as I do? And he's just like, well, I haven't been here long enough. Maybe, I don't know. This happens everywhere I go. (laughs) And he's like, but you know what? Why don't we go on a vacation? It made me feel like I was frustrated with Jane because I was just like, Jane, you, you're in the middle of a crisis. You really care about this studio. You care about these people. And you're just going to let this random guy doesn't share your values tell you oh forget your friends that are struggling why don't you just come on this random vacation with me let's get out of here I wouldn't go I just feel like it's one it speaks so much to how Tom has changed like he's he's no like he's basically becoming Bill you can see him on that path now and Mm -hmm. then two like you see that now it's like up to Jane she's at a crossroads at this point She's like, is she going to sell out and go on this trip with Tom or, and kind of give him to that? Or is she going to stay and help all her friends or figure, figure shit out about the job that she loves? But coming in the clutch, Aaron tells her about Tom and the date rape story. Yeah. So if you missed it, Tom only had, Aaron makes a point to ask Tom during the layoffs hey you only had one camera crew during that interview right and Tom's like oh yeah and early on in the script we get we we get a scene where a cameraman is trying to film um intentional shots of what trying to stage he's trying to stage the news trying to stage the news which is a big no-no you can't do that (laughs) I love how Jane's like, no, 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 it's your choice. You put on the boot if you want to put on the boot. It's up to you. <laughs> Which is awkward and hilarious. But I mean, it's true. <laughs> you can't do that. 
But so it turns out during the date rape, the date rape story that Tom did, there was this big moment that really resonated with everyone where he has a scene of himself crying. Like he's, his reaction shot to the woman crying about her date rape story is he has one single tear. <laughs> it's just like, it's too perfect. I don't know why no one questioned that before, but Aaron does question it. And when he finds out that that was staged, he tells Jane and she basically loses her shit on him at the airport. <laughs> and, and the thing is, to me, so I, I understand I understand 100% why Jane would do this. The thing that bothered me is that they did it at the airport. <laughs> I would have just called him and said, listen, bitch, I'm not coming. <laughs> but, she, but she goes all the way to the airport to yell at Tom about a breach of ethics and then refuses to go on the trip. And even though it was true to her character and her job is her life and maybe – him baking tears on the camera felt like he was demeaning her profession, but it really was just like, I don't understand why we had to do this here. And to like, especially for her to have fought so hard, knowing that they didn't have the same fundamental values from the beginning, knowing that it, it felt like Jane, you could have seen this coming from a mile away. If you had just, she was blinded by the eyes. She's blinded by their crush. They weren't compatible. They weren't compatible this whole time, and it, it just it it frustrated me that she went and she felt the need to make that big scene. Like I drove all the way to the airport to tell you that you're a douchebag. It's like airport traffic, really. <laughs> well, I guess you could see it as maybe the night she found out, which I'm assuming was the night before. She was just stewing over it and she didn't want to call him and say anything because she was still trying to figure out how she felt and mm -hmm. then it's the 80s they don't have a cell phone so the only way to get a hold of him at the the point when she finally has made up her mind is to go that makes sense yeah that makes yeah. complete sense okay <laughs> think <laughs> of it think of the times <laughs> Yeah, like okay. Mercedes, you're the friend that Jane needs in real life to like to shake her and like tell her to stop it. It's like no, don't. she did have that friend. Aaron was that friend, and she straight up ignored him. True. True. Oh my gosh. Moving on to Act Three, the final act, which I titled "Eat Your Feelings at the Awkward Picnic." <laughs> I hated this so much. Now we're coming into this, it's seven years later, and now Tom is at the podium giving a speech at the local television broadcasters conference. It's a completely different tone than Jane. He's up there, like, commanding the stage, like, I'm an old pro, blah, 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 and I'm like, you're a bitch, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I thought but you were going to say fraud. <laughs> yeah, he's a fraud, too. <laughs> the thing is, the th thing that really like made my blood boil was that you could tell that the audience loved him they loved him and I still don't trust him I don't like he just seems like a snake to me it's a really like that that whole resolution to this is that in my mind that mind this whole ending is it feels as though the bad guys won 
Yeah. <laughs> you know what it I mean? Does. She gets this beautiful bride and it's just like, see, everything's exactly how it's supposed to be. He's with a hot person, as he should be. Aaron has a curly-haired son, as he <laughs> should. And Jane, if you're reading the script, is all alone. Mm, that made me so upset. I was yeah. just like, this will not stand. It's a problem. <laughs> if we fast forward to scene 138, exterior um, walkway day. So this ending annoyed the crap out of me because Jane so, – Aaron and his son are going to meet Jane, and Tom, of course, is like, oh, I'll come along for old time's sake, man. I was just like, who the hell wants to see you? It's like, <laughs> fuck you, Tom. You guys didn't exactly end on the best note. I don't know why you think this is going to change anything. And um, they show up on the page, and Tom has this fabulous fiance. And he's talking to Jane about, like, oh, are you going to take the job? Because they offer her to be some, what was it, like? Managing editor. Managing editor in New York. So she's getting a really big promotion. That's basically going to work for Tom. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a slap in the face. (laughs) It's a huge slap in the face. And then I know that they mentioned that Jane is seeing someone. Like, she's found someone that they've been dating a a few months. In the Oh, it's not on the page? That's on the page. No, no. On the page, it ends with, so um, Aaron asks her, because she's like, oh, there's a guy, and he says he'll fly up a lot. But then after Tom leaves, Aaron's like, who's the guy you're talking about? And it says Jane Shrugs. And just like, that's why I was so upset on the page, at least the version that I read, because it's just like Jane Shrugs. The version that that I read had that. The version that I read had that. Oh. Had the jet ski and stuff. The okay. version that I read did have that. So that must be a revision. That that had better. Yeah. That's why I was like, it had better be revised. Because if that's the <laughs> ending, basically what that's perpetuating is you can't be a career woman and super successful and have love at the same time. It just doesn't well, work out for you. I, I, <laughs> like, I think it still says that. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, why does everyone else get to be engaged or married and Jane is barely starting this new relationship? Because it says mm-hmm. that the relationship has been, like, for three months. Yeah. But it's, yeah. it's like, why can't she have been married, too? Yeah, yeah, it's seven years. Mm-hmm. Seven years has passed. It's enough time for Tom to find this British lady. And for, and, yeah. And for Aaron to be happily married with kids, like, I, it just rubbed me the complete wrong way. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm just like, I don't yeah. know. I, I don't think that's Jane's fault as a character. I think that's the writer. It's not Jane's fault as a character because, again, she, the entire movie, she is a stereotype. Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't know how to love. She doesn't know how to deal with her emotions, blah, blah, blah. And so when you're thinking of it from that point of view, this ending makes sense, but it's such a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. she would have been fine. It would have been fine and made perfect sense if she also had her own relationship. Like, why couldn't Aaron be taking, like, his little boy to meet her and, like, her new fiance or her new yeah. husband? Yeah. That's why on the screen, when there was a guy under that <laughs> that awning too, I thought she was going to introduce him, and then it just turned out to be a random guy in the shot, and I was like, well, why was he even there? <laughs> yeah, because it would have been nice to show, it's like, they all ended up better apart instead of being together, but then it's like, mm-hmm. well, Jane's 
uh, stood out the short end of the stitch. So I was like, I don't. But it's it's a demonstration of like that old thing where you know men can have all these you know fascinating jobs and careers and still have a home life and women can't. Mm-hmm. You know, it perpetuates that. Mm-mm. I don't like it. I didn't like, I didn't like it either. I didn't like yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. So I overall, will say. <laughs> yeah. Overall, do we agree that it was not good? <laughs> it's not for It us. was not. It had some redeeming qualities. It had some things that I can understand like, oh, this is really interesting. And it's probably why people use this example a lot because, and it's not just like the books I've been reading for the column that have, everybody's referencing this movie, references, referencing this movie as a classic. It's, I remember being told about broadcast news in undergrad. I, I don't remember, we didn't screen it for grad school, but I know it was talked about. And I'm just like, I, I don't understand. Why. Do you remember why they were praising it? It's just praised as like a, a I guess it's just like a comedy. I don't know. I, I'm going to be honest, aside from Mary Tyler Moore, I really, and I guess The Simpsons as a co-creator, I'm really not sure why James L. Brooks is so popular. I'm sorry if that offends you. I don't like his work that much. <laughs> At least as far as movies go, his TV is different. It's way different. But as far as films go, I'm not on board with his stuff. I think that's very interesting. Um, I don't think I've ever seen Something's Gotta Give, but he did no, turn it in- as good as it gets. Oh, as, as, as good as it gets. Yeah. yeah, I haven't seen it. I've it's, never seen that. Uh, it's it's such a frustrating movie, and I know that's what it's supposed to be because so basically in that movie is Jack Nicholson, and he suffers from OCD, um, and he ends up falling in love with this waitress, but his tendencies um, get in the way of like making a real human connection. And he's just a really dislikable character. And I know it's, it's a lot of it is just because he has OCD, but at the same time, he's just such an asshole all the time. And the second he does something to redeem himself, he immediately reverts back. And that's why I didn't understand the love in that one either, because in the end, she ends up falling for him. Um, but it just didn't click for me. I'm just like, I, I, I don't understand why these characters are together. They obviously, like, obviously Jack Nicholson's character really likes her, but she just seems so frustrated by him all the time and repulsed. <laughs> Maybe for a particular type of audience, that's what they want. Mm-hmm. We are yeah. not that audience. We're yes. not that audience. I'm sorry. If you're a big James Elbrook fan, you know, more power to you. He is, like, of he's he's big in the industry, and he deserves the credit. I mean, he did, he produced, directed, and wrote this movie. So, I mean, obviously, he puts in work. It's just, it's not for me. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. I just, I remember I was, I was reading it, and as I was getting to the end, I thought that she was just going to go with him before I finished it. I was so pissed. I stopped reading. you thought she was going to go on the vacation? I stopped reading. (laughs) I was so upset. I was like, are you effing kidding me? She's, I'm all, anyways. Indiana, would you have preferred this ending or the alternate ending where she stays with Tom? There's a literal alternate ending. Oh, God. I didn't see, that's what I didn't know you were talking about, Ange. 
you have to, and we can put a link to this in the show notes. Mm -hmm. I want to know what that ending is. I did not see that. Yeah, it's just an alternate scene where in, instead of leaving the airport by, by herself, they they get back together in the cab. Do, yeah. Then do they have a seven years later? No, no, it's just they they did an alternate... Oh, wait, did they do... I'm not sure if they did the whole alternate ending ending, but they did an alternate scene. So I think that ends up being... That might end up being the actual closing scene, but since they threw that one out and I think they may have either replaced it, with the resolution being the seven years later instead of the ending in the car. But yeah, no, I was just like, ew, I don't like it. Both, both, first of all, both of those choices fucking suck. Yeah. <laughs> They're both absolutely terrible. But if I had to choose, I like I would choose the one here because at least she didn't give up who she was for mm-hmm. some yeah. low life that she is clearly better than. Mm-hmm. She deserves more than Tom. Oh my god, I just got so angry. <laughs> like, ugh. they both suck. Both yes. endings suck and are a disservice to Jane. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm so upset now, Anne. <laughs> I had no idea that existed. Yeah. Yeah, just well, like just this uh, YouTube or Doodle alternate ending broadcast. No, I don't want to. Oh, I don't yeah, right. See it. Yeah, it doesn't make you mad. <laughs> What the hell? <laughs> I'm upset. <laughs> Why does that even exist? <laughs> you know what? They probably shot that and they were like, oh yeah, this is pretty shitty. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> Maybe we should reshoot that. So just pretend it never happened. I want to forget this whole movie. Why would you pick this, Mercedes? Because it was a play. <laughs> it- Okay, you know what? Now we know. Here's the thing. Here's here's what I want my parting message to be. Even though we didn't like this film, it's always better to know the films you know everybody else knows. When you get in the room, you don't want to be the person that didn't watch broadcast news. Because people will reference things, and you want to be the person with knowledge that is a mile long and an inch deep in every situation. So now we know broadcast news. We don't have to like it, but at least we know it. And if we're in a writer's room someday and somebody brings it up, like, hey, it'll be like that scene in broadcast news. D, you can get mad internally, but in the moment, you could be professional and be like, I know that. (laughs) Or I can hope I'm in a writer's room that wouldn't reference broadcast news because they also agree that it's shit. Mm -hmm. But we don't know. We don't don't know. know. Wherever I end up, I'll be happy. But you make make a very good point. Mm Mm-hmm. And now we can we can all make our own opinions because we've actually seen it. It's better than not seeing it and still having an opinion on it. I think it mm-hmm. also like speaks to that truth where you should, if people say that something is a classic, you you should watch it. Mm-hmm. And there are going to be plenty. There are going to be a lot of classics out there that you hate mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're classics from a a time that is not now. We have yeah. evolved. Or classics yes. for different. I, reasons. I will. Yes, I will say that. <laughs> But I, I, I just didn't like it. Yeah. But I do know I it now. I don't like it either. Okay. And now you know it, listener. And you can tune in again next time. Our next script is going to be One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes. So we're hoping that you will tune in for that. Please read or screen before watching. And we will talk to you then. I've been Mercedes. I'm Deanna. And I'm Angela. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. 
Script to Screen is an original WODC podcast and an extension of the Reading on Writing column for the WODC blog. This show is hosted by the Writer Die Chicks and produced by Deanna Gomez. Research and script breakdowns are done by Mercedes Milner. Stay up to date on all things Writer Die Chicks at the WODC.com and follow us on social media. We're on Instagram at the Writer Die Chicks, on Twitter at WODC underscore official, and on Facebook at the Writer Die Chicks.